Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mary Harrington. She's a contributing editor at Unheard and an author. Women have been subject to a lot of changes over the past 200 years. Liberated first from the land, then from the house, then from the womb, and finally even from their own nature. But has it actually helped? Has modern feminism been for the best, or has it made women's lives more confusing than ever? Expect to learn why feminism might not have delivered on the promises it made to the world, why there is a war on relationships between the sexes, Mary's guess on why there are so few families getting together, how women's liberation has only worked for a small number of women at the expense of many others, why abortion and birth control actually led to more single-parent households, and much more. Mary is an incredibly smart human. I very much appreciate all of the work and background that she's done. And she is a card-carrying, used to have the short hair and do postmodernism before postmodernism was cool credentials to look at this through the lens of someone who has been through the ringer and come out the other side. Uh, Very, very, very cool insight today. I really hope that you enjoy it. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Mary Harrington. Tell me, how do you arrive at giving a critique of feminism? Why do you have any credentials to do this? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a woman, which is a start. Um, I was uh, fairly rabidly fully paid up um, second wave feminist in my teens and then third wave slash woke, slash, well, early adopter of the whole kind of woke um, postmodern worldview in my twenties, you know, and did my level best to live it. I'd say until I was about twenty-eight, and then for a whole load of very complicated reasons, kind of lost my faith in that way of living, um, and in the process of kind of reassembling a worldview which made sense, um, which which I reckon took about seven years, um, having having kind of hit that quarter-life crisis. Um, I came out the other end thinking, well, I don't believe in progress anymore. And then I thought, well, I've always thought of myself as a feminist, but if being a f- if feminism is held up as one of the kind of central planks in the 
in the sort of evidence stack that says we're we're on a sort of never-ending upward path of progress, right? Um, like, and people say, you know, the first thing people say when you say, well, you know, prove it. Like, even if you say I don't believe in progress, and they'll be like, well, how can you say that? You're a woman. Like, you know, things are much better for women now than they were before. You know, that's just kind of treated as self-evident. And I thought, okay, well, this. Um, is it is it still possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? And I thought, well, I still care about women's interests, and I still think those are often sidelined. Um, but but then I, that sort of started me down a whole rabbit hole of um, you know the, the, of the relationship between feminism and progress, and um, and that in the course of which I got married, I had a baby, and having a baby made me think a great deal more about what feminism thinks considers progress to mean. Um, most of which seems kind of um, structurally predicated on not being a mother or, you know, being a mother, put, put it this way, like be, being a mum and being um, emancipated in the terms that are sort of normally set out by what I think of as magazine feminism, you know, the kind of Jezebel and of cosmopolitan variant. Um, they just don't, they don't stack, they don't, they don't square very comfortably. And so I spent, I spent, you know, personally quite a bit of time trying to, trying to make sense of that problem, um, pushing a buggy around the empty daytime streets of a small town in England. Um, trying, um, you know, it's not like your mind stops working just because you've had a baby. Um, so there I am sort of pushing the buggy around, thinking about, thinking about second wave feminism and thinking about being a stay-at-home mum and thinking about how different it was actually to the impression that I'd always internalised of it from feminists from the, the the sort of liberal feminist orthodoxy which says there's there's nothing more in for dig basically and this is this is you being oppressed and this is terrible and i'm like well actually i you know in in practice for me um you know it's it's quite a nice life um you know but the the, the major downsides of being a stay-at-home mum are loneliness um and um well it's it's a nice life provided yeah, the main the main downside is loneliness and it's quite a nice life provided you have enough funds and provided uh, you get on with your husband you know if either of those things is is not there you know you've you've got problems and, and I mean that and that led me down a whole rabbit hole of looking at how we got to thinking of um how how we got to thinking of, of women's of the good for women as being something which was just anything but that. Um, yeah, there's a that, there's a quote from Helen Roy that I keep on coming up against, which is today women especially are sincerely frightened by the idea of becoming just a wife and a mother. American women willingly run from the home, from the specter of becoming a prisoner or a parasite, or even worse, a domestic prostitute, into the arms of a corporate employer. Laughably, we call this process freedom. Right, and it you know it it's, it remains an open question for me absolutely as to you know just how, I mean Wendell Berry put it really nicely. He wrote a superb essay, "Feminism: The Body and the Machine," where he talks about his wife, um, who doesn't have a she doesn't have a paid employer. She's his wife, and he described me. He's like, well, she's her own boss, um, and it's it's he, he's he's like I struggle to see how. Um, sending her off to work for a, an employer who gets to tell her what to do all day is makes her in any case, in any way meaningfully more free than she currently is. Um, and he makes the point more generally about the transition from agrarian life, where people were kind of economically productive within a home, to and, and particularly you know the role of women in a household like that, where you might be looking looking after a small holding and raising kids and making making processing raw materials into goods for the family and doing all sorts of other subsistence work, all of which is economically productive. Um, and comparing that to, uh, you know, in what, in what meaningful senses is a woman like that 
um, liberated by being sent to punch the same four holes on an assembly line all day. You know, it's 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 hard to it's hard to square. But I mean, this is this was all this is all what led me to to write to writing the book, which I've which which I've just finished writing, Feminism Against Progress. <clears throat> I spent the first third of it sort of looking at uh, setting out the rabbit hole that I went down and setting out, you know, this, this sort of deep, it, it ended up with me doing a sort of deep reread of the whole history of feminism since the Industrial Revolution, which is, it's a lot less dry than it sounds, because, I mean, it's the history of how men and women live together in, in just normal life. And, you know, obviously you can't do that in incredibly granular detail because it varies depending on where you are and um, who you're talking to. But the sort of broad outlines of it are, re are consistent enough that you can make some sort of general claims. And, and really, it's the story of um, men and women of, of work leaving the home. Um, that's the story of the Industrial Revolution is, you know, from from the point of view of family life, it's the story of work leaving the home. Um, sure, so some people have always worked outside the home. Yeah, I mean, soldiers obviously are not is a, being a soldier is not a work from home occupation. But, you know, in, in a in a in a how in a economy, a sort of pre-modern economy that's mostly um, artisan or agrarian um, work. Um, it, the, the, the basic unit of production isn't an individual, um, you know, with a sort of economic relationship to an employer and the state. The, the basic unit of production is a household. Um, and actually the legal structures which women in want, which in the industrial era women started to find incredibly oppressive were oppressive because they were the, the they they were the economic they were the legal structures which were designed to accommodate a productive household um, with and and so there was a, there was one single legal head which was in the pre-modern world the man um, who was who, who who had the official title of the property and had had the sort of formal power um, but whether or not women were radically disempowered in that context in in every in every case i think is much more up for debate and it's generally treated as axiomatic that women were just sort of effectively kind of chattel slaves and property up until that up to that point and i think i think the literature doesn't really support that you know if you look at if you look at characters like the wife of bath in chaucer um you know who's writing in the sort in the middle ages um and he has these incredibly sort of larger than life female characters and i mean yeah you can point to things like you know like the scold's bridle and so on but you know the, the sort of device that was placed on 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 the the head of a woman who was who was deemed to be talking too much um but um you, there's there's a fair amount of evidence from from the literature and also from from anthropological studies of small village life um that makes a fairly compelling case that you know, in a lot of these settings, not all of them, but in a lot of them, you know, women, women made, women generally don't wield formal, formal power. You know, they're not, they're not the decision makers and the property owners, but they wield considerable informal power in ways which is much more difficult to put your finger on because it doesn't come with title deeds and so on. But they, but, but women in a village, in a sort of, you know, pre, pre-modern style village will, will wield power by controlling access to reputation or controlling controlling their husband's access to information, or you know the power of gossip and the power of public shame, and there are all sorts of very subtle, um, very very subtle community-based forms of power, which I think are not are often not accounted for. In well, this is why I've been so interested in female intrasexual competition recently, mm -hmm. because it's way more interesting than male intrasexual competition. Male compete in these kind of very brazen, upfront, loud, garish ways, whereas the sword that women wield is significantly more subtle and nuanced so to go back to your 20s story to now it kind of feels a little bit to me almost like a uh a ptsd rehabilitation that you needed to work out 
philosophically, morally, ethically, existentially, what had happened to you during that period. And then you have this, whatever, seven-year reflection, which is capped off with having husband, child, dog. And then that is a a vector. It's like a, like a synthesis of all of this stuff coming to the front. Maybe you had some questionings beforehand and you go, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And then finally you've got this experience. What does it mean, given the fact that rights for women have changed over the last 100 years during the Industrial Revolution or the last 200 years through the Industrial Revolution, does that not suggest that there has been some sort of progress? Well, things change, obviously. Um, you know, I don't think it necessarily follows. I, I don't think it follows from that that everything has got better in some sort of absolute sense. You know, I think you can make you can make a very you know it's, it's obviously the case that some things on some metrics life is a lot better than it used to be. Um, I just don't think it's possible to prove um, in any in any convincing way that the absolute sum of human felicity or virtue or happiness or well-being or you know any metric you care to name. Um, is is better now than it was a couple of thousand years ago. You know, it's not you know by the same token. I, I don't think it's possible to prove that it's worse. You know, I'm not a declinist or one of those. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. People, I just I just don't think it's like the moment the moment you say, well, well, pro we're making progress. You're like, sure, but you know, on what metric? And the moment you've just you've you the moment you pointed a metric, you've already assumed the truth of what you set out to prove. Do you see what I mean? You begged the question a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you've begged you've begged the question so, exactly. Okay. In what and ways? In in what ways is would you consider, or what are the main ways in which you consider uh, progress to have been downwardly trajected for women over the last period? Um. Well, some things have got a lot. Some things are a lot better. I think I I wouldn't frame it quite like that. I wouldn't say some things have got. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, some things have got better, and some things have got worse. But my argument is that. Um, what we think of as a story of progress, if we can just if we can just bracket progress for a minute, if what we think of as a story of progress is actually the story, it's a story of technology above, and it's about it's a story of men and women um, responding, and women and feminism is women's particular response in aggregate to the way the ways the industrial revolution changed family life, and and women's lives in particular. Um, first, by taking work out of the home, and second, you know, so for for bourgeois women, for, well, for, for women at the top end of the food chain and also for women at the bottom of the food chain in a different way, um, f forcing women's work out of the home as well. So, so working class women went into factories and then had, had to find a way of look at, find, figure out what to do with their children. <coughs> and women, and sort, and women of the, the sort of clerical clerical class and, and the upper class um, suddenly had much more comfortable lives and wondered what to do with themselves and so agitated for access to um, access to public life, you know, in, in the sort of knowledge work. So, you know, started to, started to demand access to clerical jobs and medical training and um, access to universities, et cetera, and so on. So there's, and, and all of this is really downstream of the changes wrought by the Industrial Revolution, which suddenly, you know, it radically reordered how society worked and changed where, what work meant, changed where it happened, and changed how men and women, men and women lived together. And, and what I think is really interesting is that over the course of really the in from in England from the 18th century and in America from the 19th century because that was where how the sort of tidal wave of industrialization moved you see this intense preoccupation with um, the the role of the sexes and particularly with the role of women there's a huge amount of discourse that happens about you know what what how men and women should relate to one another and how what women 
what what the role of women now is and that and rightly so because because it was everything was suddenly different and all of the settled norms that had oh. had, had obtained up and up to that point just weren't there anymore yeah so women women were displaced from the home by things like the washing machine in a strange way because they were liberated from having to do the I mean, it was hours per day, right? That women would have to wash and dry clothes, typically in the past, or other. Right. I mean, I mean, white goods. White goods is a twentieth-century phenomenon. That sort of had a that had, that had a different set of effects. But I mean, if you think about if, if you think about the fact that you know your bourgeois housewife in the nineteenth century is suddenly not required to be a farmer's wife anymore. Um, and and in a sense, in a sense, her her role has got easier because she doesn't have to spend you know sixteen hours a day kind of on on grinding manual labour whilst also watching kids. Um, but on the other hand, her role has also shrunk because she's no longer economically productive. In a sense, she, she's now she's now dependent on her husband, and that come that at, at scale, you know, like like I said, you know, when I was a stay at home mum, I had a I had a pretty nice life because we could afford to live on on one income, and I had a good relationship with my husband. But you know, for for women where that wasn't the case in the nineteenth century, um, you know. What, it, that's, it's all very well if you've got a if you've got a good relationship with your spouse and you've got funds. But what happens if your husband drinks all the money? What happens if he beats you? And and you're still living under a legal regime which is which is designed for productive households where women wield a measure of informal power and they're also economically productive members of the household. Um, and 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 suddenly you've got these totally economically dependent <coughs> female role in the 19th century, um, where where but. But but women in this situation are not they're not legally allowed to own property. They give up all of their property to their husband when they get married because that was how it worked in the pre-modern era. You know, you you became a, you became an economically productive household and, and and that was and that and and women had enough clout in an informal way to I think on the whole more more or less make that work. But in the in the industrial era, suddenly they were radically disempowered to, relative to the way things had worked before. Um, and and for women who found themselves in an unhappy marriage, that was it was awful. And they were like, oh, you know, if I leave him, I have to leave my children behind, and I have I have no I I've got no claim to my children. I can't divorce him. Oh, it's it's almost impossible to divorce him, and I can't I won't have any property. He can leave me destitute. Um, you know, it's a it's a terrible situation. So obviously, women start. You know, there, there was all of this agitation for legal personhood, independently of their husbands. There was you know the Married Women's Property Act, which I think is late nineteenth century in England, and there's an equivalent one in a similar time in America. Then um, there's there's all of these campaigns, the the sort of first wave feminists, for 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 legal legal and cultural remedies to try and offset um, the the disadvantages that women had been left with as a result of this massive kind of social and economic change. So really, really, I mean, this is this is just to kind of explain what I mean when I say feminism isn't it's not it's not moral progress and people saying oh okay now we see we were doing it badly before because we were wicked people. It's 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 downstream of much much larger um, material changes um, and the way the way societies have to adapt in aggregate um, particularly the way the way the relations between the sexes had to adapt in the context of that and the way and and women in particular pushed for changes to the law and to social norms um, in response to what they understood their interest how they saw their interests to have changed and of course that's where it gets really complicated as well because not all you know not all women are created the same you know posh women and working class women don't necessarily have the same interests and at that point you know feminism starts to you know it starts to multiply and become extremely fractious and, and that was one of the biggest lessons i think i learned from you the last time that we spoke which was that some of the uh, emancipation of 
women and <laughs> men from previous expectations, for instance, chivalry amongst men, the fact that men were expected to maybe hold the door open for women or to be protectors, preservers, providers for women. If you get rid of that, and you are a woman in a relationship with a man who's maybe had strong male role models in the household and has been through higher education and has done all of these things and has a good moral compass, uh, maybe that does open up a more fluid and colourful, enjoyable way of living. But if you are a woman who is perhaps in the underclass, who is with a partner who didn't have such tight constraints on what he considered to be good behaviour and didn't have those same sort of good male role models – what is the justification for your husband not hitting you anymore? Like how much baby bathwater and bath has been thrown out of the window here? And that, I mean, that that just blows my mind. And again, um, talking about feminism or women as one big hegemon, right? One big block that you are trying to fit. Okay, well, we'll do this thing that is good for all women. It's like, well, no, it's going to be good for some women <laughs> on average and bad for other women on average. And yep. because the ones that wield the most power culturally, intellectually, tend to be the ones toward the top of that echelon, they are the ones that this sort of system yep. seems to be yep. optimized for, and it forgets yep. the women in the working class. Absolutely, and I can I can point to examples of that from from all you know, going back some time. Put it that way. I forget I forget the exact legal contest, but there's a there, there was a there was a legislative battle in the early 20th century with feminists on both sides over the over the regulation over workplace regulations in factories um and there were there were feminists on one side who were looking at working class women on factory assembly lines and saying no obviously we need to have uh, we need to differentiate workplace regulations by sex because we're looking we're looking at what it, what it's like working on a factory floor and you know obviously if you're built like you Chris you know you can work a 12 hour day doing something physically quite demanding and it will have one set of if you know you'll be tired at the end of the day but it'll be once you know and if you're but if you're 5 foot 4 and female um, or, or potentially pregnant or something like that, it's going to be a completely different experience for you. And so, you know, th things like the length of the length of the shift and how long your breaks should be, and you know how how, how they how workplace safety ought to have been configured. And and these women were saying, these feminists were saying, you know, obviously we need to have sex, we need to differentiate by sex in the workplace. And then there were there were other feminists who wanted who wanted to be treated equally in a clerical workplace. So, for example, as a lawyer. Um, they wanted to go and have and, and lead professional lives as lawyers or accountants or something. And they were saying, no, 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 absolutely, we can't have this. You know, there's, there's absolutely no way we can have this because otherwise that opens the door for all sorts of discrimination against us in the workplace. This is a disaster. We can't have this. Um, I mean, you can you can see you can see the kind of class tension right there. You know, and it's and 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 what ended up happening was I th and was that the the middle class feminists won and they won with the backing of some male industrialists. And you just think there's a there's a par there's a parable there that has been that has been repeated a number of times since, and I think is being played out now um, in the the gender ide ideology debate. I think that's a rerun of essentially the same the same drama. It's the same thing with. Yep. Uh, we'll get onto it later, but male uh, only single sex spaces as yep. well, right? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The concern, it's the same picture. The concern around male single sex spaces is because. Uh, law graduate number 3001 lady that's been through her higher education is concerned that there is going to be some gilded door behind which she can't get into. But what it's stopping is a number of men toward the bottom end of the distribution yep. from yep, having yep, a yep. working man's club where they can go and, you know, have 
30 minutes or an hour on an evening to have a quick pint with the lads. Uh, okay, right. so rolling the clock forward from 1800 into 1900, what is the story of the unpaid debts that start to accrue for feminism well, throughout that time? Well, I mean, I, where I've where I think the clock really starts ticking is when is where you take you take the sort of paradigm of women's women's emancipation from all, all of the things all, all of the ways that you know that life has been gendered and constrained, and you and you take that campaign that the the, the feminism of freedom, if you like. I mean, I've been. I, I think what what you need to say, like this, this camp, this this process of women demand, you know, calling for adjustments to the way we live together, you know, throughout the industrial era, um, it, it it was justified. I hope I've sort of made the case for that. You know, there was there was a lot of it that was completely legitimate and made sense. Um, but all and all and what I found what I found interesting was that there are sort of two poles of it, which I I just saw coming through again and again. You know, very very crudely, you could call it the feminism of care. Or interdependence and the feminism of freedom, you know, and these are, and I mean, you know, it's a, it's an enormously rich debate, and there's plenty of internal conflict between different groups of women who thought different things mattered most. Um, but broadly speaking, there are, you know, there's the, there are the voices who say, no, actually, you know, we, we need to, we need to accept that, you know, women are mothers, and we, you know, we, we live in relationship, and this, this stuff matters, and the work, you know, the work of caring for dependence is important and that's part of being a woman it's part of being a mother and then there were other women who said no no actually what we want is what what's what's in what women's interests look like being able to enter the market and enter public life on the same terms as men um and what the moment once you start breaking those down in a bit more detail you, there's a lot of tension between them because you know obviously if you if you have if you have a public if you live you you engage in public life to take an extreme example if you work as an mp you know if you're if you're breastfeeding you know that that obviously and you have an all night debate you know you, you've got a problem you know that at a point it becomes zero sum I mean, you get these sort of ridiculous stories about, you know, high-powered executives having have pumping breast milk and then having it flown home so that their nanny can, yeah, um, you know. But obviously, at a, at a point, at some point, at some point, being a mother and and you know, very high-powered public life is is a zero-sum contest. But but rough, broadly speaking, you've got these two poles: the feminism of care and the feminism of um, freedom. Um, and where I think the rubber really starts to hit the road in terms of um, tensions is. Where I've where I think the feminism of freedom definitively won. You know that was a battle that ran from the mid 18th century in Britain up to the mid 1960s, and then in the 60s in both Britain and America, the what changed it was another technology transition. Um, two two new developments, namely the contraceptive revolution and the digital revolution. And after you know after that, just nothing is the same. It's a new era. We don't we no longer live in the industrial era. Um, you know elsewhere I've I've not not in the book, but elsewhere I've argued that now we live we live in the transhuman era, which is to say, or the cyborg era. I think I've called it in the book, you know, the, which which is the same thing really. Um, you know, to a to a degree, once once women embraced the contraceptive pill as a sort of basic precondition for personhood on the same terms as men, um, you know, that that effectively makes you a cyborg in the sense that your your personhood is inseparable from a technology. You say as well. The, the reason that that's transhumanism is that instead of medical care being predicated on trying to fix a problem, it's predicated on trying to fix something which is natural. Right, exactly. It's, it's, it's premised on upgrading normal rather than just restoring, restoring you to normal. Mm, okay, so the legislation of abortion, introduction of the pill, 
fundamental hinge fundamental hinge moment and i think the the degree to which that just changed everything is still underpriced my great friend louise perry has done has done a fairly solid analysis on on just how many ways you know from a from a really quite sort of left feminist perspective of some some of the undercounted costs of that and of of the sexual revolution that followed um particularly for women did you see Um, i want to inject that did you see the clip that went it's currently still going semi-viral between her and peterson and it's about uh, f- men that are forcing themselves on women, and a bunch of very far left YouTubers have responded to this. Have you seen this? You don't spend actually, as much time I, on the internet as me. No, I, I actually haven't. I actually haven't viewed it, although although the, there's been some discussion of it in my the, circle. The base British imagine. women's group chat has <laughs> yeah, been yeah, going yeah. off, there's has been, it? There's been there, there's been some discussion of it, but I actually haven't seen the clip. It's, it's half term, and so I've been less extremely online than usual. Got you. Okay. Well, it's Sam Sam Cedar is the main person that's done this, and then it got uh, like signal boosted by Ethan Klein from H three H three and blah blah blah. It's all they're all internet people that you don't need to mm. worry yourself with. You you can k- keep writing nice things. Yeah. But um, given Louise's background and your background as well as like the most card carrying. I've served my time in the trenches, doing the reading, living in the places, having the haircut, you know, like doing the full thing, full thing. Um, it, it really does, it almost feels like horseshoe theory to me a little bit that the people who now are supposed to be uh, the most for women, right, the ones that are um, ostensibly helping women on the internet, especially male left-leaning contributors – are the ones that when a woman from the left who has been through the ringer, so to speak, with regards to this ideology and come out the other side and is now perhaps a mother or, you know, Nina Power is one of your friends, like who still has this uh, approach, but isn't coming at it from quite so much of a family side. Um, they still get dragged. And Ethan Klein, one of the reasons that I think he's... Uh, he made a video responding to that lady who had her digital deep fake porn video leaked on the internet and then cried on stream she's one of the biggest female streamers in the world cried about it and then ethan uh ally to women laughed for like 30 seconds or a full minute with his entire crew and then played some theme song and he got dude like you don't get to play both sides you don't get to be the edgy comedian and also the ally to women and then when louise and jordan are trying to play around with ideas that are a little bit difficult as soon as you're talking about for sex and stuff but like jordan was saying maybe we need to make it even more uh, the repercussions of a man doing this even worse and for you to like, pop up as if you're like white knighting for all of the oppressed women out there, it's like, bro, I remember only two weeks ago you were laughing at a girl who cried because her nudes, deep fake nudes, were on the internet. Like, you don't get to do that. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll only say one thing about this, Chris. Um, a little while ago, um, I wrote something about a problem that's been puzzling me for a for a while, which is why it is that so many self-styled male feminists end up having a sex pest scandal. Um, I, I wrote I wrote the article unheard make me made me take out all of the links to rumors of this of this nature because there were so many of them and some of them were really quite famous names but but really it's a very 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 consistent pattern now obviously I'm not making any imputations at all about any of the names that you've mentioned here because I have no idea who these people are but um, 
it's a very consistent pattern and it's one of these it, it's just it's just interesting that's all i'll say there's a there's a curious paradox there and i think it's it's probably one one that needs um further exploration my i, I in as much as i have a hypothesis about it it's that it's just you know they're if they're mistaken um it's because they've been led astray by the idea that men and women's sexuality is fundamentally the same which is just obviously not true and you know i, I can see how somebody would end up accidentally could and could end up being accidentally a sex pest if they just assumed that women have the same approach to sex as men um and it's all you know the more the more cynical interpretation of it would be that there there is a subset of men for whom it works as a kind of as, as kind of a little Sneaky bit like a duck fucker line. syndrome yeah, it's it's a way it's a way of making yourself seem seem more benign and harmless when perhaps perhaps there are other things going on as well. I don't know. Anyway, but that, but that's all all I'll really say about the white knights um, as so, as a class. So uh, abortion, contraceptive <laughs> contraceptive <laughs> pill. Yeah, we'll switch from, from white from knights insulting. to abortion. Yeah, exactly. Moving on from insulting an entire demographic. Let's go on to something straightforward. Killing babies. <laughs> um, <laughs> I laugh. It's not funny. Killing babies really isn't it's funny. It's not funny. We're trying it's not, not to laugh about it. Um, no. Legislation, abortion, gets introduced, pill, gets introduced, emancipates women from having babies upon having sex. Then the sexual revolution comes along as cultural technology to try and emancipate women from having feelings when they have sex and fully bifurcate everything so that they can be the disembodied sex hole that all women's freedom has always wanted them to be. I'm, I'm not sure that's quite how I'd frame it, but in practice, that's sort of what ended up happening, I suppose. <laughs> I think I think that's more of the sort of crisp spin on on what's been going on. But you know, something something like that has kind of in practice ended up happening. I mean, the 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 set the the feminists of the of the second wave all sincerely thought that the sexual revolution was going to be wonderful and emancipatory. You know, there's there's loads in Jermaine Greer and you know plenty of other writers of that of that generation who just sort of took a very optimistic and libertarian um, approach to, to the sexual revolution and, and believed that it was, it was now, now that, now that we could um, emancipate ourselves from the consequences of, of sex, you know, and, and, and just, and, and treat it as a sort of leisure activity rather than as a, as a very consequential thing that needed careful, um, careful management, you know, at a social level, lest it produce sort of long-term social challenges at scale. Um, that therefore that, that that would mean you know sex could just be emancipated in in its entirety and we we'd all end up in this sort of marvelous kind of polymorphous zone of erogenous joy and everybody you know and a thousand flowers would bloom and it would be great and in practice it hasn't really worked out like that um, because it turns out that it's, it's harder to abolish human nature than what <laughs> is the polymorphous erogenous zone of orgy joy or whatever it was that you came up with brilliant yeah well, I mean, you know, I mean, it's kind of what we have, but but I think, but but the but the point that I wanted to make in feminism against progress is that we have that the, the the mistake that those guys made was imagining that we could have that, but without but but without the market. They all thought that we could have the polymorphous erogenous zone of orgy joy or whatever it was that I just said, um, and that we and that somehow this you know commerce, you know, grubby commerce wouldn't get its fingers in. But in fact, what do you mean commerce? What do you mean market? Um, what I what I mean by that is that. It's it's become increasingly clear to me as I've looked into the history of um, well, really the history of technology, um, you know, without sort of going on too lengthy a detour. But you know, in as much as in as much as the 
the the modern world has become freer. Normally, it's because something that used to be just a thing that we were stuck with um, has been replaced by by a technology. So you know, we used to be you know most people used to be stuck with walking everywhere, and so a certain like getting anywhere took a certain amount of time. You know, you you introduce a bunch of technologies into the picture like that. You know, people are suddenly freer to get from A to B more quickly. I'm taking a very very simple example, um, but. But, but that it uh, doesn't come cost free and one of the one one of the costs is is just is quite literally the market moves in to free free well i think what i'm trying to say freedom and trade are impossible to separate you know the moment the, the, the more freedom you have the more trade you have because the moment the moment something is liberated from the social norms that that governed it before um, and becomes something that you can that you can buy or sell people will buy and sell it what's an example of how that worked with regards to sex or relationships well i mean if you the the first playboy club opened the year the pill was legalized um i think that's i think it actually i mean if, if we're going to be really pedantic i think the first playboy club actually opened a about six months before the pill was legalized but i mean it was pretty much there already at that point um and by by the by the 1970s uh, radical feminists were were running demonstrations against the the level of violence and degradation that was now you know increasingly endemic in the porn industry and and the and and the the the, the porn industry existing i mean you know there has always been pornography you know to to an extent but the porn but the porn industry being able to present itself in in libertarian terms is predicated on the idea that sex is consequence free and therefore is a, is a private matter and the the idea of sex being a private matter is predicated on the technology existing that that makes it possible for it to be a private matter which is to say contraception because if there's no contraception sex isn't a private matter you know the rest of your village really does have skin in the game about who you sleep with right um and particularly if you're female and you could end up with an unwanted baby and which people have got to figure out what to do with so you know if there's if sex is a consequential thing like you know it's it's not a private matter it just isn't do you um, think rolling the clock forward from that do you think that there was a particular hinge or a unique hinge point with the introduction of OnlyFans, with the fact that you had a particularly frictionless D to C normal person to audience member platform for things like this. I don't know. I think, I I mean, I I think OnlyFans is a long way down the slippery slope, to be honest. Um, I mean, the the, the hinge moment is is probably online dating as such. Because I mean, once you've once you've got used to the idea of you know packaging yourself as a kind of product in an online marketplace, which is essentially what you're doing when you create a dating profile, you know, it's not you know I've 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 run I've done like digital commerce for for clients back in the days when I worked in marketing, you know, and doing that and creating a dating profile, they're not that different really, you know. At the end of the day, you're 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 marketing something, you know, you're you're creating an appealing package which is designed to 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 cause somebody to click. Um, and and you know what happens at the checkout after the checkout process is supposed to be different, but actually you know there's it's once you've got to the idea that you're that you're that you're you're press you're you're browsing a set of products and then you're clicking on one that you like the look of, and then you know in a sense you're sort of checking out the product. You know it's it's just not it's just not a very big step from that to you know kind of you know online dating as parasocial relationship, and it's not a great big step from that to you know that as a sort of subscription product you know i think i i, I think the beginning of the slippery slope is online dating as such mm, yeah, um, that's that's a, an interesting point that it's probably a difference of degree <laughs> a difference of kind yeah. particularly yeah i mean y- yes yes there is a you know the point at which you're saying no actually i'm i'm going to press i'm going to press buy rather than i'm just going to press like hey hey baby 
hey baby how's it going you know message this person yes that's that that's a qualitative difference but it's not it's not a very big one you yeah. know but no i think com, com, you know once the rest of the paradigm is in place it's not a very big one before we start talking about <laughs> cyborg theocracy is there anything else that we need to understand about the foundation of how we got here I mean, I think the, the the critical the critical points are that feminism isn't about moral progress as such. It's a response to material conditions. Um, you know, the industrial the industrial era was a set of massive transformations in material conditions, and first and second wave femi- first first wave feminism really was a response to those material conditions. But everything changed with the digital and contraceptive revolutions, and you know, and and second wave feminism was, I suppose. A, a response to that but everything which has come since i think is qualitatively different because it no longer really has very much space at all for the feminism of care um it's almost almost all of it is about the feminism of freedom which is to say um and and it's and it's all fundamentally um in it it has it has this this premise of um freedom underwritten by you know freedom underwritten by technology baked into it which is to say, it's all it's all underwritten by contraception, and uh, the and, and the final backstop of that has to be abortion. Um, and really, what you're saying when you legalize abortion is that a, a woman's freedom is is that important when a woman's personhood, you know, it's 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 sufficiently important to the to to women's political participation that they be free and unencumbered, that they can pursue that even to the extent of ending the life of an unborn child. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely um, does. So, and, and and really, you know, what, what, however, wherever you stand in relation to that, you you know, I think you, we could all accept that that's a very strong statement to make in favour of freedom. You know, where where that comes into direct conflict with the, with the needs of a dependent other. Well, do you um, think? So, I, I really like that that summary that feminism wasn't about progress; it was about the response to changes in technology and uh, sort of society at large what what has been the fuel that has continued to push feminist progress back through the 60s right through to now you know still going stronger than ever is this uh just like a mimetic echo of a time when we were forging forth is it performative empathy that is being driven by online well, I I ask myself that, and I think you know, there's probably not a single answer to that. I mean, one 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 factor is surely you know, that having having all agreed sort of collectively, and this is a meme that's much bigger than feminism, having all agreed collectively that more freedom is generally better. Uh, we've we've sort of, we've just gone on pursuing that blue sky um, vision. Yeah, yeah, you know that that more more liberation is just better by definition, and and also that more more technology will and more 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 economic growth, more technology, more innovation will will deliver us more freedom, which is which is obviously good. You know that's a kind of unstated unstated premise of you know most of the 20th century going into the 21st century. I would argue, it's kind of there. It's there in the water. You know, it's so so kind of you know well dissolved that you know we, you don't even really you don't re- don't even really think about it. It's just it's just there in the water. Um, and and just just the other point that I would underline um, is that. Every time you use technology to afford yourself more freedom or more innovation or more growth, um, you don't, as you, you you can't, you don't, as a consequence of that, end up abolishing whatever it was that you were trying to emancipate yourself from before. So, so if, for example, you were using a technology to flatten the differences between men and women in reproductive terms, that doesn't end up abolishing 
that doesn't end up abolishing human nature. You know, men and women remain different, even if we've used used a technology to flatten some of those differences. And that that really that uh, and all all we've ended up doing is reordering those differences to the market, so they become supply and demand problems, or they become strategic vulnerabilities. And I suppose that that really sort of leads leads on to. Uh, what I've called cyborg theocracy. What is which cyborg is... <laughs> theocracy? Come on then. Um, I mean, it's it's not actually my meme. I should. I I, I really need to re- reiterate this. I I owe the meme to a to a, a magnificent Albanian called Ardian Tola, who you who you probably who you probably know. Um, who, who for whom it, who, yeah, who just kind of threw it out there, and I'm like, this this is this is this is such a great description. And when I when I talk about cyborg theocracy, I mean, how do I how do I put this? Um, I mean the moral order which legitimizes the worldview which I've been trying to describe, um, in which the the good is just understood to be the pursuit of ever more freedom underwritten by technology. Um, that sounds it sounds very dry and very abstract put in those terms, but it's it 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 has a lot more it has more teeth than that. Um, well, you've got the war on relationships between men and women as one big component of this, so. What would be uh, an example of how that's manifested? Yeah. So okay. So so I've 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 looked at um, in in the book I've looked at three three aspects of um, human nature as I as I see it, which which we're now waging war on. You know, having having got having got to the the end of the easy wins in in terms of in terms of where industrial technology can can get us to. Um, my my the way, the way I see the the turn the the cyborg turn is that you know we we've sort of finished industrializing the world and we've pretty much run out of you know places to colonize and natural resources to exploit and you know rivers to pollute and so on and so forth. But the same you know that that sort of relentless onward march and that relentless kind of you know exploratory energy hasn't hasn't stopped. And what it's done instead is it's turned inwards. So it's turned it's it's sort of turned inward towards colonizing the human body and turned inward towards colonizing and exploiting the human soul. And so and it, through variously biomedical advances and digital technology and in the, and the former is really, really about um, commodifying the human body. And the latter is, is about commodifying the human soul. So the domain of ideas and the domain of sociality. <clears throat> um, and because because the sort of the, the fundamental premise is that we can we can use more technology to deliver more freedom. And this is going to result in, you know, more more money and also more more felicity somehow. Um, What's felicity? I, I mean, joy, happiness, well-being, goodness. Thank you. Know, you. The, the good stuff. Yep. Um, have, having having delivered all of our easy wins, um, we're now we're, we're now setting about abolishing slightly trickier um, aspects of human nature. So we've we've done our best to abolish the difference between the sexes. So now we're and and so now we're waging war on the relationship between the sexes. You know how how people. You know the 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 dance of courtship if you like the 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 domain of sexual desire show me how um, that's manifested how's that happened um so really that what what that looks like is the the sort of slow breakdown since the contraceptive revolution of of any sort of groundedness to why why we why we why we fuck you know why why we experience desire you know there's there's a sort of slow slow disintegration of the idea that it's ordered to anything let alone fertility 
uh, let, let alone sort of, you know, relationship formation and having children. And, you know, increasingly this idea that it's a sort of it, it's it, it's a property of whoever it is who, you know, it, what, what I do with my sexuality is my own business. And therefore, you know, what I choose to point it at is also my own business. Um and while while you could say, well, you know, of course, it's some what 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 somebody what somebody chooses to beat off to in the privacy of their own home is their own business. Um, but I've but I've done my best to show how actually at scale, the the larger consequences of that in terms of how it how it affects the way people form relationships, even when people really long to form relationships, and even when people long for a long term partner, uh, is actually it's it's enormous. Um, and if you if, if if you propagate this idea that really people can just you know do people can just do whatever they want, then people really will do whatever they want. And particularly when you when you when you reinforce this with you know an, an endemic sort of an endemic online pornography and you know pervasive cultural message that says commodifying yourself even to the point of making yourself a subscription product on OnlyFans is not only legitimate but it's also empowering. Um, it it leaves people in the situation where you've got this incredibly kind of adversarial and incredibly hostile and incredibly exploitative dynamic between the sexes, such that it's now almost impossible to to extend enough trust and enough vulnerability, I think, to another person to be willing to take the risk of um, loving someone. And I think that's that's catastrophic over the long term for people just being able to, you know, find happiness or kids or anything really. Do you think that this is contributing to one of the reasons that fewer young people than ever are having sex that Very likely, yeah. Yeah, I mean it just seems seems chaotic, um disorganized and frightening. Um you know, and if you're I mean honestly, if I were if I were 22 now and all of the guys I was I was potentially I could be potentially dating had been marinated in porn since they were 11, I I'd be I I I probably just take up macrame instead because I mean at the end of the day you're probably not going to have a nice time you know and if if the presumption is that it's just going to be a casual hookup you only have a 10% of 10% chance of orgasm anyway so I mean why wouldn't you just stay at home and do macrame or I don't know start an OnlyFans <laughs> you know in a way you know, I I don't I don't blame them I don't blame them for 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 just opting out voting with their feet because it sounds it seems hellish so the uh, sacredness around not only sex not only what it meant physically in terms of making babies, not only what it meant emotionally in terms of a connection, but then even before you get to marriage, the um, holder, the placeholder, the um, uh, space within which sex was typically happening, which was relationships, that was also put under war. And then downstream from that, the relationship between mothers and babies was also sent to war. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very... Uh that that starts from a from a slightly different place um but i mean let me see where how do, how do i talk about the war the war on relationships between mothers and babies i mean that's a that's well, I mean, put put it this way. Put it, I mean, I was I was I used to have recurring nightmares about having a, about accidental pregnancy. Um, I can still remember it in my twenties. I'd just wake up in a cold sweat. Um, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, and it's it's not just it's not just the prospect of sort of being left literally holding the baby um there's there's something you know if you've what what i've tried to show is 
this this sense, this increasingly strong sense I've had that a lot of the pro-choice activism, which is around now, much more so than was the case even even 15 or 20 years ago, but a lot of the women who are who are campaigning for the right to abort babies now are doing so because they're viscerally frightened by the prospect of pregnancy. There's something so horrifying about the idea of letting that happen to your body for a lot of women. And I, I see it. I mean, this is, I, I couldn't point you to point you to a particular tweet, but, but I see them a lot. You know, there's, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a, there's a growing constituency of young women for whom the idea of the idea of being pregnant is, you know, the response is body horror. You know, it's like it's like the sort of H.R. Geiger kind of, you know, xenomorph that, you know, bursts its way out of your chest. You know, the, the response is in that sort of order. It's not a kind of it, it's not perceived as a wonderful thing at all. Why do you think and, that is? Um, I've, been, I've been trying to understand it. I've been trying to get my head around what's going on there. And I think it has to do um, it, with just how radically everyone is expected to be self-contained now, just how radically everyone is, you know, the the good the right the you know the the fight the good upstanding person is supposed to be completely atomized you know you're not it's it's shameful to de to depend on somebody else it's shameful to be vulnerable it's shameful to be weak um it's shameful to um You, you you have to be in command of all of your own shit all the time that just seems it that that seems to be a sort of basic expectation and if you're not if you're not willing to if if you need other people, you're you failed. That seems that seems to be the sort of basic basic presumption. And fundamentally, you can't be pregnant and not need other people. You know that that just doesn't work. Oh, so the getting pregnant is an amplifying of fragility around your own personal sovereignty. Some yeah, I think that's probably a good way of putting it. Um, and also. I mean, you know, if, if you think about the pre, there are some much more sort of basic things as well. You think about the premium that's that's on looking a certain way, and you also think about the the premium of that's that's on controlling your physiology and controlling your appearance. I mean, you know, even even just not being fat is a massive flex, you know, in, in the the Instagram world, um, you know, and then you you add you know a, a series of totally involuntary bodily changes into that and you can see how people would react with just total body horror well, i mean but, look at the kardashians look at what they do they go the full surrogate route right 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 and and this is the and this is really where the the, the war on the war on relationship between mothers and babies the, the rubber hits the road um because once you start um once you've accepted that basic premise um you've you have accepted that the the way forward for pursuing women's interests means um, allowing the market into into your body and allow, allowing commercialized medical interventions into your body is the route towards emancipation. And once 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 you've started down that road, then you think, well, why why should it stop? Why, why, why should it stop with level with controlling my fertility? Why should it stop with underwriting my autonomy by by ending an accidental pregnancy? Why shouldn't I extend that to all of the other ways that biomedical technologies can 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 alleviate the burden of motherhood? Because it is it's a considerable burden. I mean, I reached escape velocity from atomized life too late to have more than one child, but you know, I nearly died in the process of giving birth to her. And I'm, I'm grateful to modern, you know, have, I, I spend a lot of time dunking on, on medicine and but dunking on, you know, modern 
modern technologies, but honestly, I, I wouldn't be here without. That. The only reason that you're here is because of right. a byproduct of those. Right, right, right. Well, <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> but I, I won't, I, I won't bore you with with that. That's kind of a side issue. But the 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 point is, you know. What, what, why, why stop with controlling fertility? Why stop with underwriting women's freedom through abortion? Why not extend? Why not extend the market further into into the the, the reproductive domain? Why not? Why not commodify more of it? Why not seek to control more of it? And at that point, you you think, well, well, why why should I not? Why why should why shouldn't we have a market in gametes? Why shouldn't we have IVF? Why shouldn't we have gestational surrogacy? Why shouldn't we cut all of those pieces? Cut cut it all into pieces and buy and and sell sell each of the pieces individually? Like why not? What would you say to the women listening that say, well, I don't want to have unplanned pregnancies? I want to be able to control my own reproduction with birth control or with abortion or with uh, maybe I'm uh, I value my career a lot and I want to outsource having a child to a surrogate. Um, well, the, the, there are, there are several there are several points in there. Let's take them one by one. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you want to if you want to control your fertility, there is always the option of not having sex. I'll just I'll just put that out there. You know. <laughs> Um, but you know, and if you if if you do want to have sex, you know, you have a choice. You can either you can either be doing it in a committed relationship, or you can do cycle tracking, or you can, or or, or you can or you can use you know one of those other methods. And um, I'm not saying don't do it, but what I'm look what I've what I've sought to tease out is some of the larger scale undercounted side effects of taking the route that we've taken. And and maybe maybe weighing and and asking the question, you know, how much how much how many of how much of this um, is is really a route that we want to be going down? And and there are there are, I, I dare say there will be women watching who's like, well, you know, I don't really care about any of these undercounter side effects, and you know, fuck off, Mary, I'm not going to read your book. Um, why why would I want to do that? So I'm fine with things as they are. In which case, you know. I, I, I guess there's, there's not a great deal more I can say to you, but, but I mean, the, the only thing I would say to somebody who who's considering gestational surrogacy just because they don't fancy stretch marks or they don't want to interrupt their career is that pregnancy doesn't just create a baby, it also creates a mother. Um, it, preg- pregnancy rewires the mother's brain in irreversible ways that in, and primes her for caretaking in ways which are just not repeatable. Um, if you haven't been through that process, and this is not to say that adoptive parents can't be great caretakers, because there's a certain there's evidence that some of the same changes take place, albeit more slowly, in non non gestational caretakers. But if you want to if you want to fast forward that process and optimize yourself for being a mother, you should just be a mother. Um, and that's quite aside from the obviously well you know, the the exploitative. Um, and you know other other potentially harmful. I went um, down a rabbit hole after reading about a gay couple in New York who wanted to get surrogacy on health medical insurance because they said that their sexuality was a form of impotence or infertility. Right. Um, and and that I'd never considered the ethics of surrogacy before. Uh, but I, I, I seem to remember that someone said it was the same as financial blackmail, uh, but done in reverse to some of the surrogate mothers for whom it's an amount of money offered to the women, some of the women from some of the couples uh, that is so great that they essentially can't say no to it. Mm. Um, and they do have things like it can't be your first child. Um, you have to go through a bunch of tests and they do background checks and they do blah, blah, blah. Uh, but still... I'm really conflicted over the surrogacy thing at the moment. I'm kind of like, uh, 
at whatever it is apogee when I'm like weightless and I just have no idea what's going on. I really haven't done enough. But I certainly know that I'm not like just blue sky totally open for it. Uh, and I absolutely love that quote that pregnancy doesn't just create a child, it also creates a mother. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's so strange to think about what happens as a byproduct of something that medically could be useful within certain circumstances when culturally it just gets uh, like spread out, leveraged, scaled at unbelievable speed. Yeah, I mean, certainly my my experience of being a new mum was that my baby didn't feel like a separate person to me for, for really some time afterwards. You know, it was like it was like I'd grown an extra limb or like grow, grown. I mean, I had literally like grown her inside my body and it felt like one of uh, some part of my body was just bizarrely separate from me now. But but still, I still needed to take care of it as though it was, you know, another arm or a leg or something. It was a really, really strange feeling. And, and you you know and you're, you're no longer getting the direct feedback from this but it's still literally part of you it feels like part of your own body and it's not it's a separate it's it's this baby and suddenly you've got to ca- take care of it and try and figure out what it needs the whole time um but but it's like she, she didn't feel like a separate person to me for a very long time and i get that there are situations where babies can't be cared for by their gestational mothers you know there are you know accidents happen and disasters happen and you know extremely ill or you know psych- psychically distressed mothers happen and so on and so forth you know there are like things can go wrong but to me it's just it's just obviously immoral to to conceive a child with the intent of separating he or him or her from from that bond the moment the moment he or she is born it just seems seems profoundly wrong to me and doing that do, doing that in the int- commercially you know for for profit just feels really quite there's quite something unpleasant super to icky. me yeah there's super, yeah. something super icky. okay so the final, really war, about that. final war the, the final relationship war, between the, the, women the, and their bodies yeah the, the the relationship between all of us and our bodies really i mean but i i think it's particularly acute for young people and it's particularly acute for adolescent girls but yeah i think you know once you start once you accept the premise that we can use technology to just continue emancipating ourselves indefinitely then you know why why should we why shouldn't we extend beyond um, controlling our fertility to flattening all the differences between the sexes and why shouldn't we extend beyond that again to the idea that we can remodel our bodies as we see fit um, in any way we in any way we choose and really the bow wave of that is is the the activist you know movement the activist groundswell for um freedom of gender i suppose to to use a phrase from martin rothblatt who's a very who's a very well-known transgender activist and transhumanist activist um rothblatt has written a book called from transgender to transhuman a manifesto for freedom of form uh, which argues that um the the freedom to be to present you know, with whatever secondary sex characteristics we choose and, and that most aligns with our sense of self is only the precursor to the, the a much more radical freedom to just present physiologically however we like. You know, if we wanted to grow a pair of horns or a tail or extra limbs, then fine, you know, you should just go for it. Or, or just to upload ourselves digitally into the cloud and be digital persons, and that ought to be fine as well. Um, and, and you see, and, and, and really there isn't, you know, it's, if, if you can... If you can have whatever secondary sex characteristics you like, you know, as you as you choose, then I, it's sort of difficult to see why you shouldn't just extend that way beyond that. And, and actually, you you know, you're beginning to see that in some of the gender clinics where, you know, a, a far greater variety of surgeries is on offer. Than- I sat next to 
at dinner. I mean, about, don't Google. Don't I Google. I sat next to at dinner about a month and a half ago, the number one transgender surgeon in America. <coughs> this guy. This guy does between three hundred and four hundred transgender surgeries per year. And he owns a clinic that does over a thousand, a number of clinics actually that are around the country. And, uh, I was incredibly surprised by him, like unbelievably surprised, zero ideology, absolutely no, I not ideologically captured at all. I didn't, it was the first time that I'd met this entire group of people. And I was like, like, I don't want to be the, like, so how do you feel about the ethics of the, da, 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 like we're having steak, like just, you know, just listen. And, and maybe the second time that I go back, I'll be able to push a little bit more. But he was uh, mentioning some of the different procedures that he does where some people would like to add a penis but also would like to keep their vagina. And a lot of the time, these individuals will come in and they'll have researched, I guess, the same way as if you want to get a fringe or something. You might have some examples of someone's fringe that you like. And so I'm looking for a fringe like this. And apparently it's it's borderline obsessive. The Well, I, I like the shape of, do you see how the head of the penis kind of does the, this thing? And then toward the base, it's sort of got, it gets a little bit thicker. So it's like, I, I really, really like this. And he was like, with the best will in the world, I'm taking flesh from your forearm and forming it into something that remotely resembles a penis. If it looks anything like a penis, let's call that a win. Do you know, this is this is insane to talk about the transhumanist stuff. Do you know how trans penises get hard? I I I have some I have some sort of let rudimentary tell you, Let me tell yeah. you in let me tell you in depth. Uh, it's a sort so, of inf inflating device, isn't it? That's correct. So there is a, a pouch of saline that is um inserted into the body behind the bladder. Uh so there's a, a little pouch at all times in there, and there's testicles, right? penis even if it's made from your forearm if to make it look like a real thing it would have testicles one of the testicles is a fake ball the other testicle is a pump attached to a series of one-way valves that goes from the pouch behind the bladder up into the penis and it's a you like pump it do you remember those uh, were they nike dunk kicks or whatever from the 90s Chris, are you telling me that, that this guy was talking you through all of this while you were eating steak this was after we'd finished eating steak, mercifully. I was going to say. Yeah, because it was pretty rare done steak as well, so I would have been quite uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, and you pump it up, and then there's a there's a valve that you can uh, release it, and you can even fit ways to uh, make fluid come out of it at the opportune moment as well. Uh, so I did, the, the bodily... Modification is unbounded now and um, pretty terrifying. Yeah, and I yeah, I suppose that's that's the conclusion I've found myself coming to. That I've I found myself essentially coming to the same conclusion as Martin Rothblatt that this is this is as in Rothblatt's words the on ramp to transhumanism. And you may think, well, fine, you know, let's let's all let's all go transhumanist. And you know, arguably, you know, on on my by by my own logic, given that we've been we've been in the transhumanist era for over over half a century now, you know, having embraced it with the contraceptive pill, why why shouldn't we just lean all the way into it? And I think, well, I I suppose that that's one response, sure. But I, I look at I look at this transhumanist revolution, and I think, well, you know, the the lefty in me says, well, hang on a minute. Um, you know, it's, this is probably going to be fine for people like 
the Kardashians and or Grimes, who who's just had had another Elon Musk baby via surrogacy because she didn't like give, have giving birth the first time. And um, this is fine for people like that. But people further down the food chain, I mean, what what generally what generally happens when when a whole new domain of human social life is enclosed and and marketized is that people at the top do really nicely and then people further down you know find it's it's they 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 get they get all all of the disruption and very and considerably less of the benefit and i'm thinking well where are all these body parts going to come from um you know who's going to donate all of the uteruses to be to be transplanted into male bodies um and you're thinking and then I stumbled sort of semi-unrelatedly on a story about um, farm workers, like female farm workers in Maharashtra, which is a, a district in India, um, who often voluntarily opt for hysterectomies um, because it makes them more employable. If they if they don't suffer from monthly menstrual cycles, they're just more employable and they're more likely they're more likely to be able to get a job in the in the agricultural gig economy in Maharashtra if they can prove that they've had a hysterectomy. And I'm thinking if we're if, if we're still if we're starting to treat human bodies as things as 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 resources which can be disassembled and reassembled and transplanted and you know treated like sort of fleshy bits of lego that can be assembled as we see fit then there's going to be a market and some people are going to be you know one class of people is going to be buying and another class of people is going to be selling um, and once once you start once you start looking seriously at the prospect of you know creating a creating a free market in human body parts it's going to be the the women in maharashtra who are selling and it's going to be i, I don't know who some some somebody some 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 male with money who's going to be buying and I, I just don't like the look of that you know the the lefty in me stands up and says no 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 we have to do something about this the lefty in me says this is a this is a grotesque a bomb this is this is an abominable form of exploitation and if if there's any way we can stand athwart history and yell stop then we probably should that's pretty terrifying that's like really, yeah. really concerning, and yeah, and and I mean, if actually, let, I'll, I'll just give you a, a more recent um, United States headline Terrorize along the same again, lines. Sure. I will. I'll, I'll leave you. I'll leave you more of the stuff of nightmares. A bill was recently introduced in a U.S. state. I think it was Massachusetts um, to offer convicted convicts in in prison, incarcerated felons, um, a reduction in their jail sentence if they donate organs or bone marrow. And if if that isn't the wombless farm workers of Maharashtra being, you know, essentially turned into resources, I don't I don't really know what else. But I don't know I don't know what is. Um, and again, you know, the the lefty in me says that if there's any way we can be standing athwart history, yelling stop. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 facing this this kind of this this sort of stuff being just normalized into into our economies and normalized into the way we see human bodies, then we should. I've heard you say previously with regards to the lefty thing um, that Occupy Wall Street failed as we tried to take back control of our finances from people that were in control of the market. And right now we have the opportunity to take back sovereignty of our bodies from people that are trying to marketize them as well. It yeah, is, I think we need an Occupy Ourselves yeah. movement. But why is it the case that other people from the left who ostensibly are so anti-capitalist haven't clocked on to the downstream implications of what this philosophy taken to its extreme would mean for our bodies like the the capitalization of the self i think some of them some of them have in for, in 
a lot of the time there's a real cognitive dissonance around um I mean, to, to be honest, there's a there's an immense cognitive dissonance on both the left and the right where it comes to technology. Um, you know, I think the, the the right is every bit as confused about technology as the left. Um, so, so I'm I'm, I'm going to be I'm sort of tossing bombs in an equal opportunities way. That I mean, the right can't decide whether it's for kind of you know retreat into sort of trad distributism or you know tealite space fascism, and you know you can't. I, I think it's very difficult to have both. Although you know may, maybe my friend my non friends would disagree with me, but I think there are some there are some tensions there. Um, and and the similarly there are there are real tensions on the left between the the desire to the desire to use technology to create abundance in order to emancipate everybody across the world and the obvious negative side effects that all of that industrialization and emancipation and technologization is having you know particularly in where it, where it comes to the sort of asymmetric exploitation of of you know overseas overseas groups and you know colonized peoples and exploited subsets of the population and so on um and then and but but they but the left can't quite give up on the emancipatory power of technology and the way the way it can be used as a battering ram against um authority and the right can't quite give up on the economic promise of technology and the way it can be used as a battering ram against um used as a battering ram against the the promise that we really ever have to have any limits at all everybody everybody wants to use technology to escape our own limits on, on both the the right and the left just come at it differently it's and so it's so strange to think what the externalities are of lots of freedom of like yep. too much freedom and it, it's something it's a question i i really really don't do the sort of socio-political cultural intersection particularly well human nature good like individuals small groups yes but as soon as i scale it up i'm essentially useless mm -hmm. but i do know that there is an interesting question about too much freedom what does it mean to have too much freedom what does it mean for the degrees of play within a system to be to be infinite or zero basically um yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and i do know that that that's dangerous um yeah i mean my view is that we it the the conservatives who think that everything that's wrong with the way we are now it could be fixed by just changing what women do and leaving everything else the same they're wrong and they they they're just they're just not thinking about it right because you know we're, we're not we're, there is no going back you know there, there is no return it just isn't happening and just saying well we can we can just keep everything the same except what women do isn't going to produce the result that they want at all um but but everybody you know but we we need we all need a freedom haircut men and women both and that's going to take that that that's going to take already, some doing. I've already done mine. I've already I've gone full V for Vendetta. Okay, so um, <laughs> big romance, your other yeah. large behemoth that you want to try and tackle. Abolish big romance. Yes. What is big yeah, romance? No, Why do you want is, to abolish it? I, I think this is where your interests and mine sort of collide, don't they, Chris? Because you're you're oh, you're yeah. very very preoccupied with the the mating crisis, and and really this is abolish uh, big romances. I suppose my 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 take on how we got to the mating crisis i mean you know i don't want to i don't want to do a whole nother social history lesson because i feel like i've blathered on about that enough already um but the my my argument is that we how people understood marriage what what people understood marriage to mean has changed a number of times over the course of civilization you know the the, the way people approach marriage now um 
isn't isn't fixed isn't set in stone you know the what what people have what people understand it to mean has changed a great deal over over the course of time and in the middle ages it was a much more pragmatic business for most people i mean marriages were very often arranged um you know married or marriages were contracted sort of relatively relatively brusquely and were then were, and after that were just basically impossible to dissolve um, or nearly impossible to dissolve and most people treated it as a fairly pragmatic arrangement, um, you know, because you were economically inter interdependent as part of a productive household. And that's just a very different relationship to one where you're expected to be all sort of lovey-dovey all the time. You know, at the end of the day, the, 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 the pigs need feeding and and some somebody's got to get the wheat in the ground before it rains. And that and that's a very different set of priorities than, you know, did did he did he remember to pick his socks up? And, you know, has, has he has he left has he left a little a little note on the kitchen table for me before he left for the day? <laughs> and then but what what changed um with the industrial era was that partly because women found themselves with a great deal less economic agency than they had done previously um the the preoccupation with love in a in a relationship became proportionally stronger as women lost agency and and it and it became you know for pragmatic reasons much more important to have a husband who loved you you know you can have a you can have a husband you just get on with reasonably well as in a sort as a sort of business partner if you're if you're both you know co-producers in a in a productive household but if you're if you're an economic dependent um, and you're unable to own property. You're unable to divorce, and you're and you have no legal personhood, really independent from your husband, and no way of earning money. You know, it's it's considerably more in your interest to make sure that you marry somebody who loves you and respects you. So, so at the beginning, you know, with the with the rise of the you know, economically inactive bourgeois housewife, you get the idea of companionate romance, which I mean, I I don't know if you've ever read any of the Jane Austen novels or I've seen them. I've been told seen by them. a bunch of people to read them, and if you're the third the third person in the space of a couple couple of months to tell me i feel like i i probably should do apparently she was way ahead of every evolutionary psychologist's time in understanding she's a, she she's a superb writer and she's she's probably the the number one um the, the 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 number one prophet of companionate marriage because she was she was the one who really set the bar for what that was meant to look like you know i mean miss, the the relationship between elizabeth bennett and mr darcy in pride and prejudice is it kind of sets the bar for what one of the what a relationship like that should look like and what it's in women's interests to pursue under those circumstances you know elizabeth bennett is is she's too much of a gentlewoman to ever to earn her own living so she needs to marry up um but she also doesn't want to marry somebody who who doesn't like her or respect her and and she ends up married to like the guy she, like she's it's it, it's the perfect relationship within within the terms of what's available to her politically and economically under those circumstances but um with the arrival of the pill and women's entry into the workplace and so on you know those those economic pressures and those economic constraints have, have sort of gone away um you know sisters are doing it for themselves now as there's the song goes you know in a, in a in a sense you don't you don't need a husband who loves you in fact you don't need a husband at all you know you can you can kind of you can do it all in theory on your own and so you know marriage has evolved from this, this sort of the, the the elizabeth bennett and mr darcy ideal to something much more sort of consumerist you know in in the sense that you know you're you're supposed to be self-actualizing each other all of the time and you you your 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 partner is supposed to be a vector for your kind of self your self-actualization and if and if they're not if they're not delivering on that front you're you're wholly entitled to just walk away at any time for any reason and that's that's the sort of and that and that's really where big romance has got has got us to, it, it's evolved into it's it's not my term but the the self-expressive marriage so somebody else coined the term but i think it's a good one this idea that you know it's a 
you know, <clears throat> my, my, my relationship expresses and, and, and helps me to optimize who I am as a person. And if it, if it stops doing that, then I no longer, I, I have no, oblig, no obligation to try and sustain it. What would and you this is bit, and, and this is predicated on the idea that you know men and women are just not economically de- interdependent at all, you know, which is just which is just true. I think in a lot of cases. What do you so, mean when so, you say that? Well, I mean, at the end, you know, if, if I have a job and and my husband also has a job, and we and we could both theoretically survive independently of one another, then you know, we're not we're not really inter- interdependent. It's a marriage of convenience. Well, or you, you know, we're not we're not interdependent to the point where it's just unthinkable to 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 end the relationship. You know, it's all it's it's thinkable from, from at a sort of material level to end to end relationships. In- Again, so this is maybe another uh, byproduct of a lot of freedom, but this time <clears throat> it's financial freedom. Yeah, and all of that again is is downstream of social and material changes, which make it make it much more much more level pegging in terms of who who can flourish professionally. I mean, the you know deindustrialization in the West and the rise of knowledge work has. Has has radically changed the balance of power between the sexes where it comes to who's earning, particularly for when you go further down the economic scale. Let me give yeah. you a quote that I got from Joyce Benenson a little, ah, yes. a little while ago. Society is man-made, and in the modern world, men have put themselves out of a job. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty accurate. Um, I mean, Benenson is a very sharp observer of men and women, and I think I think there's a lot of truth in. I've I've, I've made a similar argument. Um, I've made a similar, yeah, it, it, yeah in, in a sense, men have put themselves out of a job. So um, you, you have this, uh, uh, whether it's a, a marriage of convenience or at least not one which is forced to be together, what would you say to the people that say, well, hang on a second, shouldn't, shouldn't I love my partner? Shouldn't, I, shouldn't we make each other better people? Are you telling me that I'm supposed to settle for some suboptimal, just like plausibly passable guy that I'll spend the rest of my life with? Well, I I would say to that, you know, I, I wouldn't just, you know, don't don't just marry somebody off the street. That's a stupid idea. Um, but um, by the same token, um, choosing one person is by definition settling, because everybody everybody annoys their partner after a while. You know, if you live together for long enough, eventually you'll find something about the other person that gets up your nose. It's just, I mean, it's just it's it's just inevitable. Yeah. And and to to an extent, um, to choose yeah, choosing one other person is is settling by definition. And if you're so hung up on the idea of infinite optionality that you're just you're you're never ever going to settle, eventually you'll 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 be left just with just with yourself. Um, well, that was. And, d- did I send you that Stephen Shaw episode about the birth rate crisis stuff? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean he. He has this, I really want to dig into this more, but four out of five childless women didn't intend to not have kids. So around about 10% of women physically are incapable, around about 10% of women, it seems, intended to not have children, which leaves 80% of women that didn't have kids not intending to not be mothers. And this is a <laughs> meta-analysis by Professor Renzker Kaiser. It's a huge, huge, huge study replicated across multiple demographics, across multiple countries, territories, etc. And there's these support groups for women that grieve over families that they never had. That was yeah. the, the term that he used. And it just makes me like that grieve over the family that they never had really, really sent shivers down my spine. Uh, and yeah, it's the optionality. It's nexting. 
right? It's peering over the current person's shoulder to see what's coming next, just in case. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, and it's, you know, when, when you're surrounded the whole time by, by sort of swiping right and swiping left and, you know, the world seems to be, you know, awash in, you know, a new a, a new person you could check out from the from from the from the internet shop of potential sexual partners and, the, and though they seem to be infinite yeah i can see why why the idea of settling would just seem unimaginable and unthinkable particularly once you get to a point where you know swiping right and swiping left is so normal that it's the the idea of settling full stop has come has started to seem a yep. bit strange yep. and i mean you know i talk to i talk to people younger than me who who tell me that if you're dating now um there's there's just no no nobody ever talks about exclusivity it's no it's it's not done to to assume you know that if, if you're seeing somebody on a regular basis that that is it, it it used to be it used to be sort of taken taken as read that if you're you know you're you've you've seen somebody a few times then you're probably not shagging other people and that's kind of rude to do that like it, that that was a norm even you know in the in the noughties and it isn't now it's just and and no and there's no there's a there's a whole new set of anxieties about even having the conversation with somebody you've been sleeping with for like six months and you're and, and then you know after six months you're it's it's an incredibly delicate and awkward conversation to try and broach you know could we maybe just not be seeing other people and and that that seems that seems like an extremely back foot to be on where it comes to like that's very 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 on the back foot where where it comes to try, trying to sort of form a permanent relationship in the first place let alone um, get to a point where actually you could you could be between you making long term plans of any kind at all, and you know and you're so far in that in that situation from from being able to imagine um, the, the the sort of radical loyalty which I think is the the basis for a kind of post romantic marriage that I yeah I I I really I really feel for the kids because it just seems like a sort of nightmare. Just seems like an absolute nightmare. Balance the scales or, or square the circle for me around don't marry someone off the street, no, but also know that uh, post-romance marriage might be something that would be good to go for. Well, I think the, the, there's probably, I mean, there's, there's obviously some due diligence to be done in terms of, you know, does somebody have more, does somebody share your values? Does somebody share your life goals? You know, does, are they, are they pleasant looking? Are they, are they nice to their mum? That's, you know, if you're a woman, that's, that's a good, that's a useful indicator. You know, do, do they treat their mum well? Um, all, all of these things, you know, are good and important kind of basic due diligence to do, you know, don't marry somebody off the street. Um, I probably don't marry somebody to a, who's addicted to porn if you can possibly avoid it. You know, all, all of those sort of common sense things. Um, but 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 fundamentally, you know, are you? My view is that the eco economic changes, material changes, are once again going to force the issue. Um, and for everybody except the top, the top tier, you know, who can carry on having these self-expressive marriages if they want to, because they're rich enough to just fuck around. Um, but, but for everybody else who's sort of, you know, a bit closer to the sharp end economically, um, it's just not going to be possible to, you know, end your marriage. It's, it's just not going to be sensible to end your marriage at the drop of a hat because we're just going to need each other more, you know, and if the world goes on getting more dangerous and more unstable and more expensive, um, you know, being, being interdependent is just a better way to be. It's just obviously, and and particularly, and particularly if you want to have children, you know, for women who are mothers, you know, a more a more stable society is just better. Obviously, if you want to be able, if you want to raise children, you know, I shouldn't need to explain why that is. 
you know, if everything is chaos, you know, if and you've got small children, you know, this is this is obviously a problem. Ah, one of the interesting um, things there, that atomization of society that you've said, everybody treating themselves as an individual that is separate yep. from the rest, that owes nothing to the rest of the world. What you end up with here is a bit of a tragedy of the commons effect, which yep. is you're telling me that I'm supposed to settle down in order to contribute to societal stability, but if I let everybody else settle down and I can continue to cycle through my nexting until I find somebody that is of the optimal Mr. Darcy shape size person that I'm looking for, that means that I get to benefit at the cost of everybody else. Well, un un unless they've already got all the nice ones and you're just left with the weirdos and the porn addicts, you know, there's, there's an opportunity cost there as well. I mean, you'd, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's your, I, I don't mean your personally, but you know, it's, it's, I do go for porn addicts, actually. That's my <laughs> that's my primary my primary demographic. Well, okay. well, I didn't like to ask Chris. No, you, can, you you know me well. Um, let men be men. Why should you let men be men? Let, let men be. Well, I mean, my there's a very simple thesis. Um, you know, if you it's all very well telling women they should get married, um, but that's not very. You know, you're not going to get very far with that unless there's somebody half decent to marry. Um, and I think one of the problems with, you know, the, there are there are a lot of men who are really struggling um and the, you know I, I probably don't need to rehearse the metrics on that i dare say you've had plenty of uh, plenty of guests on your show who've rehearsed the metrics on that so i won't rehash them here um but there are a lot of men who are struggling and that gets much more of that gets more obvious the further you go down the social scale um and it's although it's not it's it's not a solution you know there there is no magic bullet solution to this but i think one of the things that we have women here really have to lead by example on is is letting men form one another. If we want good men, then we're like shout, shouting at men is not going to make men into better men because it's just observationally clear to me that women don't make good men. Men, good, good men make each other. Or they, I mean, men, men as men, I, I, I'm really sort of hesitant to generalize in this way and, or, or to, to kind of, but it's, yeah, we, where where it comes to learning how to behave and learning how to be, it's it's just obvious to me that men just don't listen to women. You know, beyond a certain point, you know, it just sounds it just sounds like no 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 no, and they'll they'll listen to their friends and they'll listen to their dads if they have dads, and they'll listen to older men who they respect. You know, who say and and if if they if somebody like that says you know you should you know if you want to be respected as a guy you need to do the following things they'll listen but and the same the exact same message coming from their mum or their girlfriend is just going to sound like nah, 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 nah. and this is just observationally clear to me um and therefore if we want if we if we want even the fighting chance of half decent men who are worth marrying we probably need to back the fuck off a bit and let them let younger men form older men and that means allowing more space for single sex sociality for men and it, it's also clear to me that we're going to have, you know, the those of us who are concerned about the invasion of um, gender neutral, you know, the the incursion of gender neutral spaces, in, even into places where that's obviously absurd or dangerous or cruel, you know, such as women's prisons. Then we're going to get a lot more support from men if we're not so hell bent on banning men from socialising just amongst themselves. Uh, yes. Okay. I see. Because you want to have your spaces kept. Uh, protected and you want us to be on board with that meanwhile saying that we can't have any of our spaces left over well i think the paradigmatic instance of that is the scouts right yeah i mean scouting went went co-ed you know some decades ago and girl guides didn't 
until until the gender woo came along and said, well, no, actually, you know, you you have to have you have to have girl guides with penises if they say they're if they Them say they're guides. girls, yeah, um, and and you know the girl guide, you know, some some a subset of girl guiding has been outraged by this, but of course, I mean, it kind of happened to the scouts some time ago, um, you know, that that, that went co-ed, and I don't. I, I mean, I can't really speak to what was lost at that point because I'm not a boy. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were if if there were opportunities for male socialization on in specifically male terms that did, that didn't happen as a consequence of that. And I think it's very difficult to prove a link between the psychic, the obvious escalating levels of psychic distress that men are experiencing and the fact that there are now very limited um all socially legitimate all male spaces that aren't either traduced as far right or or under attack from you know politically under attack from um people who would prefer to see them you know opened up in the interests of egalitarianism but it's but the the numbers are in that show that you know men are men are lonely um as, in aggregate you know and increasingly so and that's getting worse and i think you know as a as a matter of compassion and as a matter of justice and also as a in it's it, and, and also in women's interests in the interests of there being good men who've been formed by other good men we we should take a step back fold this into that discussion around how men shape men <coughs> and how women shape men as well uh, so from roy baumeister last year when i spoke to him uh, men will do what women demand of them in order to get laid. Women set the standards for sex and men meet them. Quote, although this may be considered an unflattering characterization, we have found no evidence to contradict the basic general principle that men will do whatever is required in order to obtain sex and perhaps not a great deal more. One of us characterized this in a previous work as if women would stop sleeping with jerks, men would stop being jerks. If in order to obtain sex, men must become pillars of the community or lie or amass riches by fair means or foul, be romantic or funny, then many men will do precisely that. If men need to simply be in the right place at the right time at 3 a.m. in a nightclub, then they will meet these standards appropriately. Women are not at fault for listlessness in men, but they're not totally unrelated to it either. How would you fold that into this discussion? I mean, it's a, it's a different way of saying what I've just said. You know, to... I, I, I suppose I could fold it into the Joyce Benenson quote you lobbed out earlier as well, in the sense that you, you you could view the entire history of you know technological innovations you know a lot a lot of which were driven by men's immense inventiveness you know as a as a sincere effort to to make things nicer for for everybody you know including for women or you know perhaps perhaps some of it was motivated by wanting to impress women and some, perhaps some of it was motivated by yeah, I, I mean I mean you, you, I mean sure there's a subset so. of nerds who just like who just like finding stuff out because they can um, but you know so some of it is also motivated by a desire for honor and also a desire to want to get for, laid want yeah, to get for, laid for, yeah for, for for men to get exactly um and and if if in the process they've they've put themselves out of a job and now they're being told that and 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 in the meantime, they've invented a technology which means that there's no longer any sort of serious consequences to sex and women are now all economically independent and yada, 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 yada. Um, and therefore, all they really need to do is to be in the right place at the right time and there are no standards anymore. Then, yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially saying it's essentially saying the same thing. I mean, how how we push back against that um, you know where where we start with pushing back against that. Um, I think there's a there's a big picture 
you know, there, there's a big picture political discussion, which I've only touched on very briefly in the book. But at, at the small scale, I think it starts with um, with refusing the pill, uh, the, the feminist fight back against the pill. Um, Give and me I th- the and I don't think feminist case. The feminist case for not being pro hormonal birth control. Well, I, I mean, it's a it's a pro sex case at the end of the day. You know, I mean, I I I stopped taking the pill when I was about twenty one. That's the last the last time I took the contraceptive pill, and I stopped taking it because it made me fat and sexless and insane. <laughs> And I mean, I'm I'm old and wizened now, so it's, it sort of seems a bit ridiculous even to be talking about this. You know, I'm ten ten years married and just entirely just spectacularly on the shelf. But I mean, you know, I, this is something I hear more and more and more from young women who are outraged having come off the pill in their mid twenties, having been on it for a decade, and who having just been routinely put on this psychoactive medicine at the age of fifteen or whatever, and they're just like, "What the fuck? What did you do to me?" You know, suddenly their libido has come roaring back. They fancy a different set of people. They, their mind, you know, they're no longer depressed. Um, you know, they, they got so much more energy and they did, they've just had a total tran- personality transplant having, having stopped taking this thing that everyone told them was a completely cost-free, um, risk management, um, thing. I told um, you about, it was after you finished the book that I pushed that uh, Dr. Sarah Hill thing your way, right? The, yeah, your, your yeah, brain yeah, on yeah. Birth control. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think yeah, it was. It really, I mean, it, it, you can start to uh, dig into the genuine psychopharmacological interactions of what's going on, but it doesn't change the fundamental understanding. Like your N of one experience perfectly explains what, what she says in the book. Um, so I, I don't think that it really needed to have that get folded in more. But someone asked me uh, a, a, a couple of questions I've had recently, like uh, what is something that you didn't believe this time last year that you do now? And what is the biggest topic that is not being discussed widely at the moment, but will be studied by historians in future? And for both of those, it's stuff around birth control. Hormonal birth control. Hormonal yep. birth control. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the pro-sex case, you know, the, the feminist pro-sex case against the pill goes further than just um it it messes with your libido and it messes with who you're attracted to and all of which has been you know i i, I recommend to all of the viewers that if you haven't you should watch chris's episode with sarah hill because it's just fascinating and you should read her book as well because it's fascinating um but it but it's not just about the way the way it changes the the basic chemistry of of attraction um it's also about the fact that it, it radically it radically changes how how you how you form relationships and how you how you approach sex and sexuality um it you know but women more and more women are complaining that they find hookup culture degrading um what is it what what's the fundamental enabling condition of hookup culture you know if 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 you're if you're repeatedly finding yourself in a situation i'm probably going to get cancelled for saying this but i'm going to say it anyway because i'm I'm about to get spectacularly cancelled when the book comes out so whatever um well, I, I, I read a lot of the Me Too stories and a lot of the sort of, you know, uncomfortable situations with slightly dodgy men stories that got written up in the context of Me Too and that whole um, that that whole furore. And it struck me that a lot of them were the sort of awkward sexual encounters where women ended up saying yes, kind of out of politeness and then felt really gross afterwards because it just felt too awkward to get out of the situation having got having got themselves into it um and you know i, I don't want to make i don't want to be 
heard here as making any statements about what they should or shouldn't have done in those situations because I just feel for anybody who wakes up the next day feeling icky in a situation like that because it's because I've done it plenty and it's just really horrible. Um, it's painful and you feel squalid afterwards. Um, but what I will say is that if you're if if you've if you've taken birth control off the table, just you're you're very highly motivated not to get into those situations in the first place. And if you don't want to get into those situations, you should consider just setting the bar higher for yourself by just not not embracing birth control as something which is a routine part of your your approach to life. Um, you know, you're not going to end up hooking up with some guy who 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 you you turn out. Who you think is disgusting when you wake up next to him in the morning? If you're just not hooking up with anybody because you're not going, you're not getting that close to anybody who you don't trust to look after your interests as well, which is just, you know, obviously a very much higher bar. If there's a meaningful material chance of you getting pregnant, you know, you're just not going there at all. Well, I think so, I, I asked a question of um, Danica <laughs> Patrick, who is a female NASCAR driver or your ex-female NASCAR driver. And I said, um, do you think that women should have sex with men that they wouldn't marry? And she, it took quite a long time for her to come to like formulate an answer a little while. And she was like, actually, yeah, I think that's, that's not a particularly bad heuristic to use. Um, and also from our first conversation, I still remember you teaching me how the introduction of the pill increased the number of single mothers. It did. It Which did is... because it, it so radically changed the, the, the absolute the, the, the absolute number of casual sex, sexual encounters was so much higher um, as a consequence of the way it changed. It moved all of the goalposts where it came to who was hooking up with who. That even even though the number of the number of accidental pregnancies per hookup was you know per total rate of hookups was lower. Um, the, the the total rate of hookups was so much higher that the absolute number of accidental pregnancies went up insane like so 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 insane it's like the biggest third fourth order effect thing that you can't foresee yep. uh yep. Yep. and what's your final suggestion for uh <laughs> how we can abolish big romance um <clears throat> well well it's it's like we, we, we need to we, we need to step the fuck back and and let let men be we need to embrace post-romantic marriage um and lean into the fact that we're past progress and actually we need to rely on one another and, and be, be looking seriously for ways that we can increase solidarity between the sexes. You know, if we want, if we want to stand a chance of surviving as a species, um, we need, we need to find ways of increasing solidarity between the sexes. And that means taking a step back from endless optionality. And it means, you know, embracing marriage as an enabling condition for, for life in common. Um, and, and the sort of radical loyalty that you need, even even when your partner is annoying the fuck out of you for for years at a time, if necessary, um, you know. And of, you know, obviously, in the in the absence of sort of serious serious abuse or kind of major psychological distress, you know, there are some situations where yes, um, families really probably ought to separate. But in most cases, you know, where where it's just not ecstatic, I think we need to tilt the balance back sort of towards a presumption in favour of of stability rather than a. a presumption in favor of red, of liquidity and finally you know what what underwrites all of this is is the feminist pushback against the commodification of our own bodies which has to start with how we relate to our own fertility and i think there's a there's the, the at the absolute heart of this i think is a is my my i i i think i think we need to defy as women this idea that we're just defective males and you know, and un unless we can, unless we can flatten our our reproductive cycles and our reproductive 
and our entire physiology so that it's it mimics a male cycle and physiology you know more close or, or at least you know is it it isn't obviously female in having menstrual cycles and so on i i i i reject that as a basic premise and i think it's i think it's profoundly important you know feminist argument for rejecting that as a basic premise and i think it's a profoundly you know fundamental to you know pushing back against the technologization and the commodification of everything that women have got to find a way of saying no you know we're we're people but we're also female you know and that's and that's fine too and you know about how dare you suggest that I, I i only get to access personhood if i just if if i'm willing to exert you know biomedical mastery over the things that make me female you know being female doesn't make me less of a person you know and how how dare you suggest that and, and furthermore how dare you suggest that i should just offer up all of those things as just commodities on the market and um, yeah no i think we need to occupy ourselves who are you speaking to with this book who would you like to read it most um this is it's a really interesting question actually i think the because different different sections of it i think are probably i'm pro i've probably ended up with a slightly different implied readership depending on which part um the hardest section i found to write was the last one i mean what is to be done is always much harder than you know what's wrong um and it I, I had I had four or five false starts where I just wrote you know thousands and thousands of words of not bollocks but just you know unnecessary stuff because I realised I was trying to I was trying to please everybody and in in the end I I thought well no actually I can't I can't please everybody and who I who I who I ended up writing the last section for was young men and women probably more women than men but young men and women who haven't who haven't yet gone past the point of no return you know where you, where young men and women who still have a choice about how they how they enter adult life and how they form families or if they form families and who are still who's still within that window so i suppose sort of 20 20 to 35 um where where they still have a choice um but but particularly young women in their 20s who've been who've been looking around and thinking no there's something off about the message of never ending freedom there's something off about cyborg theocracy and you know who who haven't been able to put their finger on exactly what it is and why everything why it just feels like a massive um, bait and switch and i suppose you know i've i've i got to where i got to the amazingly well not you know the reasonably reactionary opinions i've arrived at by liberaling really as hard as it's possible to liberal or you know sincerely you know i've done my best to liberal as hard as possible and i've, I've arrived at a fairly reactionary place in the course of that and i just i just hope that there's a few people younger than me who just maybe aren't going to waste quite so much time reaching escape velocity you know get there a bit quicker and with slightly fewer scars so I think that this is part of a, you know, the concurrent trend that we're seeing from a bunch of different angles, whether it's me talking about the mating crisis, whether it's Louise and the sort of cultural side of things through the sexual revolution, whether it's you looking at the historical, then blending into the technological, whether it's Nina looking at like the existential from men's side of stuff, like, you know, everybody seems to be converging on this demographics, Stephen Shaw's stuff, uh, in terms of uh, medical advances, uh, Dr. Sarah Hill's stuff, like everybody's pointing or a lot of people that I find interesting are pointing at the same thing. And I think that this is an important book to write. And I'm really glad that you've got it done. Uh, where should people go if they want to follow you, if they want to keep up to date with your work? Uh, Feminism Against Progress will be linked in the show notes below. Go and get that on Amazon right now. What else should they look at? Um, I'm, I'm a regular columnist at Unheard, so you can go and check me out there. I'm Mary Harrington. I tweet at Move in Circles. And I, I have a sub stack as well, which you're most welcome to subscribe to, which is Reactionary Feminist. 
Mary, I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. <laughs>